you know, the structure of the programming industry and the structure of the cable industry means effectively they're not being served. They're, they're getting ripped off, I believe. This is episode 241 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Cable subscribers often complain about bundling, being forced to choose from video packages that include channels they don't want in order to get access to the content they do want. Why are we stuck in this model, and what are the ramifications for service providers, especially now that so much content is available via the Internet? What are some of the concerns smaller cable providers encounter when negotiating for content? This week, Christopher talks with John Bergmeier, Senior Counsel from Public Knowledge, who explains why Comcast and Time Warner Cable and other cable companies are so in love with the bundle. They discuss why it's difficult to move past this model and whether or not bundles are a bargain, as they are described in advertising, or something quite different. Now here's Christopher and John Bergmeier, Senior Counsel at Public Knowledge, discussing unbundling and the world of cable. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm speaking with John Bergmeier, Senior Counsel for Public Knowledge, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. John, can you tell us a little bit about what Public Knowledge does for people that haven't been around to hear past interviews with Chris Lewis and Harold Feld and other great people that you have on staff? Sure. You know, we're a D.C.-based public interest organization uh, or consumer group. We fight for consumer rights in a number of areas, uh, such as telecommunications, cable TV, uh, copyright policy, Internet policy, things like that. Things that actually pretty much have in common is the concept of access to information. We want to make sure that people can access communication tools and the information that they need uh, from, you know, competitive markets and at low prices. And I just wanted to to suggest one other thing, which is that I think sometimes people think public interest group, uh, public interest groups are on one side and businesses on the other. Now, you guys are often working with businesses, often creative businesses, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, we're a D.C. based organization. Uh, which is pretty important. So we're, you know, we advocate before the FCC, before members of Congress, and we find it's pretty effective uh, to ally with as many people as we can when there's issues that we all agree on. So even though we do fight uh, a lot of the major uh, telecommunications companies all the time, uh, you know, if, if there's an issue we agree on, we're not above working with them because we're really just about getting results. And, you know, what you mentioned was, you know, frankly, a lot of the things that ben- that consumers benefit from, you know, also benefit smaller businesses, whether they're startups, whether they're, uh, you know, community broadband providers, uh, anything like that. So, you know, those are maybe commercial enterprises or, or, or you know, they're, they're, they're doing a thing. They're not just policy and advocacy groups. But nevertheless, to the extent that we can work with group, with organizations like that, we're happy to. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, cable unbundling and kind of the economics and law behind how the channels get set. And it, I think, you know, the, the general question is kind of, why can't I just get the channel that I want? And, and why do I have to pay for so many other channels I might not want if I subscribe to cable? Yeah, I think the problem is ultimately that it's a, it's, there's a, a lot of very concentrated marketplaces all sort of working together. Uh, to create an economic model which is very profitable for sports leagues and some major programmers and maybe even some major cable companies, but ends up requiring that people buy a lot of programming uh, that they don't necessarily want to watch. I think sports, I mentioned that because I think that's like the key example. Sports programming is actually not as popular as people sometimes think. 
you know, maybe 20 or 30 percent of people might actually watch sports, but uh, things like ESPN, everyone pays for it. Or uh, when networks carry major sports leagues, everyone ends up paying for that as well. And people who are not sports fans but are cable subscribers can nevertheless end up spending, you know, between 8 and $15 a month of their bill just goes just for sports rights. And I think in a more normal market, you wouldn't see all these non-sports fans uh, subsidizing sports fans. But the way that the market is structured, you know, I think that's the clearest example of the way that uh, people are denied choice and they end up paying more than, than they ought to pay. Well, you mentioned something that I think is probably one of the keys to to first uh, explaining, and that is that we're not really talking about one marketplace or one monopoly. There's actually overlapping monopolies. And I think maybe the way to lead into this is to say, you know, if if Comcast wanted to just sell me individual channels, could they do that? You know, probably not. I mean, Comcast is obviously the largest cable company, so they have a lot more leverage uh, with programmers than than most other uh uh, cable companies or satellite providers do. But nevertheless, even they, you know, they sign contracts with the major programmers. And what happens is, you know, they sign a deal with Disney, they sign a deal with Viacom, where they're not just carrying one channel or, you know, the popular channels that they carry, but they're getting, they're getting bundles, right? So they buy a bundle. And sometimes the terms of the deal are that the the, the programs that they carry have to be on customers' basic cable packages, you know, because there's a fight between programmers about, you know, who gets that prime real estate, you know, low in the dial where people are much more likely to watch it. And if you can get yourself included in basic cable and everyone has to pay for it, uh, you know, that's great for you as a programmer. So, but, you know, there's only five or six truly major programmers that end up controlling, you know, so many of the channels that people watch. And taken all together, you know, they end up, you know, basically comprising the bundle and the uh, very often the cable companies don't have the option contractually to offer to customers uh, more a la carte choices or or even if they did you know the the, the terms would be uneconomic like theoretically the the ability might be there but you know they you know customers would end up paying more for more choice which doesn't really make a lot of sense right you can you can imagine a number of scenarios in which you'd say oh you can get that channel individually but it's going to cost almost as much as a package would have anyway right exactly you know we talk about a la carte but that doesn't necessarily mean it's like you know you go to a sushi restaurant and you you know pick out each individual roll um on a card it's really just about okay, people are paying too much and they're not getting the choice they want. So, you know, people subscribe to Netflix at $7 a month and you subscribe to all of Netflix at once. So in a sense, you know, that's a bundle. Uh, you go to a fast food restaurant and, you know, you get a value meal. That's a bundle. Um, and, you know, those things can be fine because people have a choice and, you know, there's clear trade-offs. I think the problem with cable you know, and every time we talk about a la carte, you know, people will uh, talk about, oh, you know, bundling can be economically efficient and it can serve all of these various values and it can sort of make less popular content available to people. And, you know, all that's true. I'm not, you know, arguing the economics of whether bundling makes sense per se. But I think when you look at the actual bundles that are available to people, they're just much more expensive and much more bloated than anyone would really choose. So it's not just a question about, you know, what is the better business model? The question is, are people, are consumers being served? And I think that, uh, you know, the structure of the programming industry and the structure of the cable industry means effectively they're not being served. They're, they're getting ripped off, I believe. 
and you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but the sense that I get is that the the bundles being created by the content owners is is a big part of the problem. If you know, maybe if the bundles were created by the cable companies more so, they might have different incentives. And certainly, if the bundles were created by the you know uh, by the, the users, the subscribers at the home, that would certainly be much better from their perspective. But it seems like it's kind of the uh, Viacom wants to throw in a bunch of channels that it knows most people don't want. Um, and it's going to stick you with, it's going to force you to take those channels if you want MTV or something like that. And, and is that that's sort of the problem. Yeah, I think that's about it. The game is that you're a programmer and what you want to do is you have one or two popular shows uh, or popular channels rather. And, you know, you know, the cable company pretty much needs to have them. So you say, okay, you know, you can have them, and but you know, we're going to give you a discount if you take these other channels, which no one's ever heard of before, or we'll even charge you less because we really we're trying to get them out there, and you know, we're just looking to make money on advertising for those. So you end up with you know the channels that people want, and then a bunch of like filler channels that end up just being there as part of the bargain, and you know, figuring out you know what you're paying for what channel can be pretty tricky. But then once the channel's on the dial, then you have you know the ability if you're a programmer to try to make that the must-have channel. So I think AMC is the most obvious example. AMC was just like, uh, you know, the old classic movies, like, you know, a classic cable channel that just plays, you know, a particular niche kind of content. Was, you know, they weren't making original programming. They're just playing old black and white movies, and, you know, that's great. But then they start with shows like Mad Men, and they start with shows like Breaking Bad, and all of a sudden, next round of negotiations with cable companies, they're able to demand a lot more money. And if you just like repeat that through the spectrum, you have a lot of channels that, you know, once they get on the cable dial, they try to make themselves, you know, must have programming. And the result is, you know, we do have, I think, better TV shows than ever before. So it's not all bad. But at the same time, people are truly paying more and more. And the question is, the market actually working uh, properly. Well, and it seems to me that the evidence suggests that TV has gotten better even outside of those bundles because I think, you know, you mentioned earlier some folks right. have an interest in in just defending bundles, right? I mean, like the cable industry pays some people who do nothing but argue with your group, it seems like, yeah. um, you know, and so they're going to say whatever they possibly can. Um, but the evidence I would point to is that, you know, HBO is a classic non-bundled channel. It's it's off on its own, if I'm right. understanding the terminology correctly. And they kind of led the way in some ways with some of this great content. Yeah, HBO not only it's always been a premium uh, channel, so it's an add-on that you could choose to pay for or not. But they have such leverage that they were able to even you know start selling directly to consumers over the internet. And similarly, you see great award-winning programming being made by Netflix, uh, Amazon, and Hulu, and so forth. So uh, I think you're right. We are in a great time for uh, for TV, particularly for these like long, elaborate, high-budget dramas, but also as well also for you know quirky new comedies and things like that. And the fact that they are occurring outside of the cable bundle really shows that it's not really the cable bundle, which is the cause of all this great programming. I think it is rather the advent of online competition, which is driving higher quality programming. So, you know, I think it's another lesson that, you know, when you when you have like a more normal market where people can pick and choose and there's different uh, sources for programming, that that's a good way to get uh, quality uh, products out. 
We did go a little bit deeper in terms of looking at the different interests of the content providers versus the cable companies. And now I want to make sure we talk about the cable companies because, you know, Comcast, although it is to some extent, you know, has not as much power as the content providers, it also has substantial ownership and cross ownership with content. Um, but smaller cable companies, and in every municipality that does cable is a small cable company, um, smaller cable companies, I think, are the ones that really are harmed the most by this. And can you tell, talk a little bit about that? So you're right. Not all cable companies are the same. And in fact, we're seeing a reintegration of uh, large cable companies with, with content. So not only did some years ago, we saw the Comcast NBC deal. Now AT&T, which has its uh, U-verse system, which is effectively a cable system, uh, is looking to buy Time Warner uh, a giant programmer. So you're, you're seeing a lot of that vertical integration. And, you know, the, the same economics simply don't apply to companies when they're at that scale and when they have that, you know, their fingers in so many different pies. Uh, but with the smaller cable companies in particular, a lot, a lot of in rural areas, you have groups like the American Cable Association that represent uh, the small cable companies. There are thousands, really, uh, nationwide, often with, you know, only a few thousand subscribers. Um, and they simply have zero leverage against uh, the large programmers. So not only do they have to bundle programming under the same deals, like they really have almost no room to negotiate. The way that the market works is that the larger providers pay less on a per subscriber basis. So obviously Comcast is paying more for programming than some 1,000 subscriber uh, you know, cable company in rural Georgia or something. Uh, but on a per subscriber basis, Comcast gets a better deal because it has more leverage, it has more lawyers, uh, it can negotiate more, it can offer more. Uh, and as a result, these these smaller cable companies, though, they, they don't have that. So they're barely getting by. So, you know, on the one hand, they're still cable companies. Uh, people feel like they don't have a lot of choice. People feel see that their bills are rising year after year. And these smaller cable companies sometimes have a pretty bad reputation with their customers, just like Comcast or Charter might. Uh, but they're not making the same amount of money or any money at all off of uh, video. It's something that they now feel like they, you know, they started out being video providers, but now video is something that they have to offer because their customers demand it. But they really find that they make more money just offering broadband, which uh, you know you don't have to uh, deal with content companies. I mean, just think how it is. Like you can start a, a small you know, community broadband network. And, you know, there's a lot of work that you have to do in local permitting and you have to have engineering expertise. And there's a lot that you need to know. But one thing you don't have to do is have like your business people meeting with like negotiators from uh, Viacom. Uh, I think, you know, dealing with like the Hollywood side of things and the content side of things is, you know, particularly for some of the smaller companies uh, can be pretty burdensome. Well, and this is where I get a little bit frustrated and a little red in the face because, you know, it strikes me the, the federal policy is ostensibly one of competition. And yet when the rules are structured in this way, that small cable companies um, who I think often have a better reputation than the big cable companies, although there's certainly, um, as you mentioned, there's a number of small cable companies that also have bad reputations. But you know, if you're a small cable company, probably everything is your reputation if you can expand. And the idea is that over time, you would hope that some of these small cable companies could rise up and challenge the big ones in, in terms of competition. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't seem like that would be possible given that everything is structured so the smaller cable companies have to pay more for the same input as the bigger guys. Yeah, and it's particularly frustrating because we're moving to 
you know, when, when, when the whole system of cable TV started, I mean, it was just like a technical necessity. You know, you had a network and the network carried particular content and then you had to negotiate for that content um, and there's really no way around it. But now, you know, with the magic of broadband, you can just provide a high-capacity broadband network and people can get their video from, you know, all kinds of sources. You know, it doesn't have to be so closely tied. But, you know, the way that the market is structured, it's really hard. You know, it's, it would be very difficult for to be a small cable company and say, you know, we're going to drop the video component and, you know, just subscribe to Netflix. Because the content that people want is just not available online yet. We're seeing some motion. You know, you, you have things like DirecTV Now and Dishes, uh, Sling TV, which are a little bit more cable-like in terms of, you know, what you can get online. But we're still not quite there. Uh, so they still do have to deal with it. Uh, and at the same time, you know, you have these tremendous disparities of bargaining power. I mean, we've had such concentration on the in the media industry um, and on the cable industry, too. But, you know, what happens is when you have these gigantic programming companies dealing with these small cable companies, you know, there's a real fundamental unfairness because there's this uh, disparity in bargaining power. And, you know, similarly, if you're just like an independent programmer, you just have one channel, you know, you just have this passion to make programming about, you know, some, you know, niche sport or maybe to serve a foreign language community or something like that. And then you show up with, at Comcast and, you know, they might not give you the time of day because they're spending all their time dealing with the big, with the big companies. So you have this... Uh, you know, this concentration, which I think is inherently anti-consumer, and you have these side effects of, of these giant disparities in bargaining power, which I think is a, a real problem that I really wish the FCC would address. One gets the sense from what you were just saying that, that we may be moving in this constant direction of, of having more and more content available online. Uh, in some ways, I, I worry that it's actually, you know, we, we take a step forward, we take two steps back, we take three steps forward, we take two steps back. It's um, It seems like the, the cable companies have a lot of tricks up their sleeve to prevent us from just moving to this world in which that small content creator that you were just mentioning would be able to just distribute across the internet. And I'm curious where you see things going in the near future in terms of this game of whether we have to subscribe to cable packages in order to watch the channels we want. So if you want to be an online video provider, not only do you have to reach customers, you have to reach customers over broadband connections. So you have issues with net neutrality there. You know, that's like a, a, you know, a big area that public knowledge works on. And that affects, uh, you know, it has to do with zero rating and whether there are bandwidth caps and whether interconnection is congested and, and things like that. And if, you know, you don't take care of those technical details and it's not even possible technically to be an online video provider that can offer people, you know, a watchable uh, video service, you know, you, you don't have a chance. So that's one set of challenges. And, you know, when you're competing against cable companies that want to protect their own business, you know, you can see how, you know, you have the incentives maybe not working in your favor at the same time, you have to get access to programming. Like, if you want to compete with cable, like, you know, you can't just offer your own programming. Uh, I mean, you can. Uh, you can be like Netflix with its original shows, but, you know, then you're not really going to be a full substitute. People aren't necessarily going to cut the cord. Uh, you know, some people will, but, you know, people who really depend on or, or really like the programming that they can get on cable, if they can't get it online, you know, they might not be willing to cut the cord and go online. So you've had a lot of companies try and fail to reproduce the cable bundle online. 
Um, and only now do you start to see some companies that are able to sort of break through the regulatory barriers, the legal barriers, and the economic barriers to offer something which is sort of cable TV-like. But who are those companies? You have Dish and DirecTV, basically. And those are, you know, giant pay TV providers. They're able to do it because they, you know, the, the satellite guys were in a bind because they don't offer broadband. So ultimately they saw that they have to adapt at some point. They have to start offering new services. And they were much more willing to risk basically cannibalizing their traditional satellite customers in favor of online customers because, you know, that's where they saw their future. Uh, the cable companies themselves maybe had the business and technical ability to do this, but they didn't uh, have the incentive to do it. Uh, you know, that's better than nothing, but it's still pretty far from the vision of like a truly, you know, open and competitive internet where, you know, almost anyone can, you know, come up with a new company and you can have like a new, you know, internet video company that goes from nothing to being huge in just a matter of years. Instead, what you see is some of the incumbents slowly shifting their operations online. So, you know, that's not all bad. You know, it could be good for some of the small cable companies if, you know, and maybe in 10, 15 years, because these things take time, um, you know, maybe they can shift to just sort of having a deal with something like AT&T's DirecTV now. But what we're not getting is the truly open and competitive video marketplace that, you know, the internet has the potential to offer, uh, you know, but that potential isn't just going to happen all by itself. So I think a key question for you being in D.C. is what can Congress do about it? There are a few things. You know, the FCC had a proceeding that the, that the previous FCC opened up, um, which is really just about making sure that smaller programmers are not prevented from selling their programming online. We had a similar issue that we faced uh, a number of years ago with satellite TV, uh, you know, satellite was a new technology. Policymakers saw that it had the opportunity to maybe introduce competition to cable, but they knew that it couldn't just happen by itself. So we passed um, a number of laws, including what is currently uh, Section 628 of the Communications Act called, you know, program access rules, which made it so that cable companies couldn't prevent programming from being carried by satellite. Uh, so the result was satellite TV providers were able to offer pretty comparable packages to what cable was offering, and they started to be pretty successful, and it was really succeeding in you know, sort of bringing some new competition to the market. Um, you know, but then we know what happened next is that broadband came along, and that just really cemented cable's advantage over satellite. Uh, but at the same time, we do have like a lesson from history of what it takes to really you know, if you want new entrants to offer uh, video services, that's kind of what it takes. You have to make sure that they can get the programming they need without being locked out through, you know, restrictive contracts that, that keep people from selling to them. Um, and you have to make sure that they can somehow reach consumers. And satellite, it was, you know, making sure they had spectrum. Um, and with internet services, it'll be making sure they have the basically the access to bandwidth to, you know, last mile bandwidth to reach consumers. So I think that's something, you know, those are the sets of policies I would look for Congress and the FCC uh, to do. It's just, you know, uh, you know, right now I'm not that optimistic that they're going to take such a, a sort of, uh, you know, proactive uh, approach to promoting competition. Well, maybe if the Time Warner from channel CNN in particular continues to annoy the president, he will strike back against the uh, the content owners and cable companies. One never knows. <laughs> I think right now we're in a time where it's very hard to predict what's, uh, you know, what's going to happen in two weeks, much less uh, what's going to happen in, in three to six years. 
you know, but at the same time, you know, even in that environment, we're going to do what we can, you know, to make sure that the, you know, the video marketplace evolves in a way that is positive for consumers and competition. Great. Well, I think you, you may have your work cut out for you, but uh, we're definitely supportive. And uh, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with us about this issue. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. That was Christopher and John Bergmeier, Senior Counsel at Public Knowledge, discussing cable companies and bundles. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcasts at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Admiral Bob for the song Turbo Tornado licensed to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 241 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Have a great day. Yeah.